If you would, go ahead and remain standing and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Just for a little bit of context, we'll begin reading in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with such patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. Please be seated. I, I, I don't do this often, but I want to start out this morning and give you a little bit of insight for what it's like to go through a book like Romans and to prepare to preach, something that, that Casey and I face every time we step behind this pulpit. The great Scottish theologian John Knox once said of preaching that I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. I would say for me, this has never been more true than our time in Romans. And it's not because Paul is unclear in any of his teaching. It's because what he is teaching contains the weight and the gravity of salvation. It is literally life and death. As we've already seen in our short time in this book, Paul describes our utter need for a Savior. He describes our utter depravity, God's utter holiness. He describes God's righteous wrath, God's grace and his mercy found in salvation. And as we've been talking about for weeks now, he discusses God's sovereignty in election and predestination. These are not little bullet points of theology we can just overlook. As I said before, these things are literally life and death topics. And for that reason, I'll, I'll join John Knox in saying, I tremble every time I enter this pulpit. And this morning, I tremble a little bit more than usual, given where we are in Romans. Romans 9 is one of the most debated chapters in all of Scripture. You will find great debates over views of Arminians and Calvinists, over 
Reformed theology. It's so highly debated because it causes us to ask a question, and it demands an answer. What role does God play in salvation, and what role does man play in it? We may look at a chapter like Romans 9 and say these questions are simply answered. But it's my hope that as we approach this text, we would do as we would do with any other text in Scripture, that we approach it with all humility and we depend not on our own presuppositions, not on our own feelings. We depend on the Holy Spirit to interpret this Scripture for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I can forgive a man a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God, if he gives me something for my soul, if he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, and the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, I'm his debtor. And I'm profoundly grateful to him. So it's my prayer this morning that as inadequate as I am, that you walk away with a sense of who God is. That you walk away with something for your soul this morning. That we can rightly understand the weight of this text today. Most of all, I hope that you walk away with a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God and of Christ and of the gospel. That not, not my words, but who God is would cause us to sit in awe. So at the end of chapter 8, Paul closed out that chapter with an unyielding assurance for the completed work of Christ. He wrote, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we entered into chapter, chapter 9, he turned his attention to his fellow Jews, describing a, describing a deep love for his brothers and sisters. He wrote, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. The Jews were a people so blessed by God. They were given the adoption as God's people. They were given a view of the glory of the Father. They were given the covenants, the law, the worship, the patriarchs, the prophets. So much freely bestowed on the Israelites. Not because they deserved it as some people. Not because they were the greatest people in the nation. But because God freely and sovereignly chose the Israelites. 
So Paul starts out Romans 9 with a potential objection that he knows he would hear from Jews. How can salvation not be granted to all of God's chosen people? He goes from that to bring up, has God's word failed? If not all Israelites are to be saved, has God's word failed? Given all these things, the, the adoption, God's glory, covenants, law, worship, prophets, patriarchs, God's word, has the promise of the Old Testament given to ethnic Israel failed in any way? Paul's response was, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul goes on to give an example in Isaac and Ishmael in which God declared uh, against human tradition that the older would serve the younger. God gives the example of Jacob and Esau. Again, God rightly showing his sovereignty declares, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And so we find ourselves today beginning in verse 14, expanding on this possible objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Sorry, that's not this week's text. That was last week's. Is there injustice in God's sovereign decree of salvation? As Casey taught last week, and as Paul says, by no means. Paul goes on to provide evidence in the Old Testament which the Jews should be well aware of where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend on, home, on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He gives the example of Pharaoh, that God raised you up for the purposes of showing the world his power. Paul clearly shows God's sovereign work in election, showing that God as creator, freely chooses whom he will show mercy and compassion to and whom he will harden. Verse 19 is where we are today. We have another expansion of this objection. So let's remember, it started off with, if not all Israel is saved, then has God's word failed? If it hasn't failed, then is God in some way unjust? And if God is just then how, if he's just and he's sovereign, how can he find fault? In verse 19, the question is posed. You, uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can man be punished if God is in complete control? Ultimately, they're asking, does God have the right to find fault in men? In many ways, Paul has been answering this question throughout the entire book of Romans already. But now we're directly confronted with the question. Paul doesn't point us back to go back and say, refer to my earlier comments. He doesn't point to his other writings. When directly bringing up this question... 
he gives us a reminder of who God is and who we are. And it's such a simple reminder. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Before we get to the metaphor of the potter and the clay, Paul sets the stage for this conversation. And it's so critically important that we do that for ourselves today, too. Who are we to answer back to God? So this is where I want to start. When we take a text like Romans 9, or any scripture for that matter, we need to approach it reminding ourselves of who God is and who we are. I know, and I'm sure that you know as well, we understand that the interpretation of Romans 9 has been debated by good and godly men for centuries. Even in our own denomination, we have fierce debates over the doctrines of grace. We have debates over the points of doctrine, including election and predestination and the depravity of man and what is the extent of the atonement. And I want to be very clear. It's okay for people to have genuine, genuine questions about this. It's okay to have concerns. It's okay to admit that we don't fully understand it all. It's okay to wrestle with Scripture and walk away with questions. But here's what we have to do. We have to let God be God. We have to let God be God. And how He revealed Himself, how we can know who God is, is through His Holy Word. So we must conform our understanding of who God is to Scripture. And we must make sure to never allow ourselves to conform Scripture to who we think God is or who we might wish God to be. So we have the main objection. Has God's Word failed if not all of Israel will receive salvation? Is God some way unjust? Is, if God is sovereign, then how, does He have the right to find fault with sinners? Now, when I say it's okay to have questions, the, the questions that Paul is listing out here aren't questions in good faith. They're not someone trying to further their understanding of who God is. These questions that Paul is bringing up are really accusations against God's character. They really serve to contend with God about who he is. So I want to point us back to Job for a minute. When Job and his three friends attempted to contend with God, the Lord began to respond in Job chapter 38. It says, the Lord, Then the Lord answered out Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, God reminds Job and his friends who God is and who they are. 
This actually continues all the way through Job chapter 38 and 39 and the first few verses of chapter 40. But the way it ends in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, it says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So what is the proper response when confronted with this vast gulf between man and God? If you go just a few more verses in Job, you see Job's response. It says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job's response was humble Silence. As we meditate on who God is and who we are, humility is the only answer. When confronted with the holiness of God, the power of God, what God has done for us, humility is the only answer. And this is Paul's response to that final expansion here. How can God find fault if he's sovereign? He points us back to who God is. Who are we to answer back to God? So to properly interpret Romans 9, we must always keep the character of God in sight. And we don't get to decide what the character of God is. He has revealed it in his holy word. So many people would approach Romans 9 and say, a loving God would never do something like this. That's not the God that I know. But we cannot do that. So you'll hear me say this many times today. We have to let scripture speak and we have to let God be who he is. So, getting his reader in the right frame of mind, Paul gives us a simple metaphor. Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We don't get to decide what this means. We have to let Scripture speak for itself, and we have to let God be God. So Paul uses this metaphor of a potter and a lump of clay. And if you think about it, it's a bit of an absurd metaphor. The idea of a lump of clay talking back to the potter, that is an absurd idea. But this metaphor is not unheard of for the Jews. It's made at least three times in Isaiah and once in Jeremiah. In Isaiah 29, it says, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. In Isaiah 45, it says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it? 
What are you making? Or your work has no handles. In Isaiah 64, it says, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are your people. And in Jeremiah, I believe we have one of the clearest pictures of the potter and the clay and this potter molding the clay to what the potter desires. In Jeremiah 18, it says, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let uh, you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the words of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster which I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listen to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Each time we see this metaphor, we're pointed back to this picture, again, of this vast gulf between the creator of the universe and the wicked beings that we are as the created. So out of the same lump, the potter makes vessels for honorable use and others for dishonorable use. And this is where so many take issue with Romans 9. Not many people, not many Christians today, if you were to ask them, is God sovereign, they would say yes. But it's also followed with a but. Yes, God is sovereign, but eh, maybe not in these areas. Many find it reprehensible to apply God's sovereignty to salvation. Paul goes on in chapter in verse 22 of his text saying, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Many will read this and say, It cannot mean what it says. That can't be what Paul is trying to say here. This isn't the God that I know. God wouldn't do that. If we take a plain reading of the text, if we put it into context of the rest of Romans, 
if we compare these verses to the, to the context of other writings of Paul, if we put these, this text into the context of the entirety of Scripture, there's nothing else this can mean. God, as the Creator, has elected, predestined, foreordained, decreed salvation to those whom He freely chooses. And He did this before the foundation of the world. And again, as we come up to these issues, we have to let Scripture speak. We have to let God be God. So, does this interpretation align with what Scripture says? Does it align with what God has revealed about His character? We first have to deal with the fact, is God sovereign? In Colossians 1, 16-17, says, For for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause it to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. In Matthew 10, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim at the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. We could go on and on and on. Scripture clearly teaches that God is sovereign over his creation. So as we look at God's work in election, is his free choice of whom he will save. If God freely chooses whom he will save, does this align with the revealed character of God? If we flip back to Romans 8, 28 through 30, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he has justified, he also glorified. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, it says, Blessed be the Father, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
In John chapter 6, Jesus himself says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raised it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If we let Scripture speak, if we let God be God, does the doctrine of election predestination align with Scripture? Does it align with the revealed character of God? If Scripture and the character of God point us to his sovereign choice and election, does it not also point us to a very difficult second truth? If God chooses to pour out the fullness of his grace and mercy and salvation, does that not mean that he also chooses those whom he will pour out his eternal wrath on? This is a term that gets argued about so often. It's called double predestination. Does God predestine some to heaven and predestine some to hell? Are there vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. So many people have called this idea unbiblical. It's been called a horrible decree, the most ruthless statement, a terrible theological theory, an illegitimate inference of logic. Most opponents to this doctrine attempt to paint these two truths with the same brush. They turn God into this arbitrary bully that is doling out heaven and hell as if he is sitting there before the foundation of the world, just going hell, 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 heaven, hell, hell. And it's just by some arbitrary evil thing. They try to make God the author of sin through this. They try to equate the unmerited mercy and grace of salvation with the well-earned justice found in the wrath of God. I fully believe in this doctrine. But I will admit that this is a tough doctrine to swallow. But we don't get to devise our doctrine based on feelings. Again, we have to let Scripture speak, and we have to let God be who He is. Turn with me to Romans 3, because Paul has already covered this. Romans chapter 3. We'll start in verse 3 with another objection. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you have been judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, 
their condemnation is just. Why is justice found if God is sovereign? How can he still find fault with us? Paul continues on. What then? Are are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already uh, charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are are under sin. And as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we have to go back to Paul's metaphor. He says, out of the same lump of clay, he makes vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. But as we just read, Paul reminds us that no one is righteous. The entirety of the lump of clay is deserving God's wrath. God does not need to be the author of sin. Because we are already sinful. The the clump of of clay is already corrupt. God freely and actively works in the lives of believers to bring them out of that spiritual death and into spiritual life through the work of Christ. But we have to deal with the rest of the clay. What about the reprobate? What about those that will never come to Christ? What about those vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God freely chooses to show his power and justice through the pouring out of his wrath. And this is not arbitrary in the least. least. It is well earned through the sin of man. God is not arbitrarily punishing humans. In the London Baptist Confession of Faith, I think it sums it up real well. It says, By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin, in in their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. The key here is being left to act, being passed over and left to act in the sin that they themselves produce. So God is holy and completely just in leaving sinners in their sin. The amazing thing about the gospel is that God would call any of us out of our sin. Paul leaves us with a question that I think we as believers need to meditate well on, and we need to meditate often on it. In verse 22 of chapter 9, 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but from, but from the Gentiles? God is holy and completely gracious and merciful to those he elects to salvation. And at the same time, God is holy and completely just in pouring out wrath on sinners. Martin Luther once said to his friend Erasmus, says, mere human reason can never comprehend how God is good and merciful, and therefore you make to yourself a God of your own fancy, a God that hardens nobody, that condemns nobody, that pities everyone. You cannot comprehend how a just God can condemn those who are born in sin and cannot help themselves, but must, by a necessity of their own natural constitution, continue in sin and remain children of wrath. It is in this very ground that St. Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God. His judgments would not be past finding out if we could always perceive them to be just. Let me reword that last sentence. God's judgments that we have a hard time as humans understanding, they are not past understanding out if we perceive them to be aligned with the character of God. If we have it wrong on the character of God, then when we take a difficult doctrine like election and predestination and double predestination, if... if if we have the character of God wrong, it becomes impossible to understand those doctrines. But when we perceive the right character of God, when we come humbly to Scripture and start from the position of God, you are God, this is who you say you are, I need to let you be who you say you are, then it begins to make sense. Too often we'll find ourselves in scriptures that bring tensions between two equal truths. God's mercy and his justice. That is a very difficult thing to put together why he has mercy on some and not others. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. If God is sovereign and nothing happens apart from his will, how can man be responsible? These are two equal truths taught in Scripture. God is sovereign. Man is responsible for their own actions. Looking at the sovereign will of God versus the free will of man and how sovereignty works with whatever level of free will man might have. These are difficult things to understand. But what we can never do is sacrifice an ounce of the truth of Scripture. We cannot sacrifice an inch of God's character. When we come to these tensions, we need to remind ourselves of this vast gulf between the creator and the created. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is found in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. For my, for my, this is the Lord speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, 
but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So brothers and sisters, if you're a believer here today, I would remind you that we can never get over this vast gulf between who we are as a creation and who God is as the creator. And the only place that we are going to find understanding is in God's holy word. And as we see texts, we cannot approach them with pride, thinking that somehow I can fully understand who God is and how he works. Because in order to fully understand who God is and how he works, you need to be equal with God. We need that reminder of that vast gulf between mankind and God. So we need to let Scripture speak. We need to let God be God. We need to humble ourselves and do what Job did, to shut our mouths before the Holy Father and to stand in awe of His power and His glory and His overwhelming grace and His mercy, to sit in awe of our overall sinfulness that God would call us out of sin, not because we earned it, but because He is gracious and merciful. As we talked about with the men, we need to sit in awe that we can have communion with the Creator. We need to sit in awe of God's holiness and the work of salvation. This is something we should do daily. Every time we pray, every time we meditate on the Word, every time we open the Word, every time we go to work, every time we talk to our children, we need to remind ourselves of who God is. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, I first and foremost beg you to call out to God for salvation, to repent of your sins and believe in Him. Scripture so clearly teaches that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture teaches that God is just. He must punish sin. We have rightly earn for ourselves God's righteous wrath. But there's hope in the gospel that the Son of God put on flesh, He lived a perfect life, He died a sinner's death, He took on the fullness of God's wrath for those whom the Father calls. He raised from the dead and He sits at the right hand of God now, interceding on on behalf of those who believe. While we can sit here and talk about election and predestination and who the elect are and who the reprobate is, there's one truth that we need to think about. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know who the reprobate are. We are commanded by God to go, therefore, and make disciples.
God choosing who to save based off of nothing of man and all of his grace is a beautiful thing. So if you have not repented of your sins and believed, again, I beg you to call out to God and do that. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, speaks of this. It says, And you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which you once walked, following the course of, the, of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the spirits of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up to sit with him, seated, uh, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. It's not a result of works, and it's so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As believers, we should sit in awe of that. As unbelievers, the very first half of that chapter is a very scary thing. We are all sinners. Without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. But you have those two beautiful words that Paul writes, but God. So repent and believe. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your grace and mercy, your justice, your omniscience, your omnipotence, there is nothing about you that we cannot meditate on and sit in awe of who you are, Lord. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, we're thankful that through your grace and mercy, we have the gift of salvation, Lord, that is not dependent on us, thank goodness, but is wholly and completely dependent on the completed work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those that may be in here today that have not professed their faith in Christ, have not repented of their sins, Lord, that that you would do this miraculous act that we talk about, Lord. That you would bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Give them faith to believe and repent. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.